Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, the 22nd of March, 2017, and this is the Promotional Law Practice live chat. I am the host of this podcast, and my name is Luke Thomas. We'll go for about 90 minutes less than that today. Got a bit of a late start, for which I apologize, but here we are, ready to rock, and um, a lot to get to. So what's in the news? Obviously, all things Bellator with the acquisition of Lorenz Larkin and Ryan Bader, this announcement of Bellator 180, where they're headed to New York City. Madison Square Garden, which is good for me since I live on the East Coast and uh, I can take that trip via train, no problem. So that's fun for me, I suppose. But maybe you're not so incredibly excited about the fact that it's going to be on pay-per-view. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. Plus, there have been some Mayweather-McGregor updates to the extent you guys want to talk about that, we can. Weight cutting is a big issue. Later today on my radio show, I'm going to have a nice long sit-down with Andy Foster of the California State Athletic Commission to see what he really wants to do and why he's doing it. That should be a lot of fun. So uh, a lot to get to. Best place to ask those questions is on the post where this video is embedded. Um, and I will get to them as quickly and as oftenly as I can. Questions that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. And I have some water in my ear, player. With that out of the way, let us get to some of these questions. All right. Uh, okay, first one's kind of interesting. Hey, Luke, did you see the new Dave Chappelle special? <laughs> uh, I have not. I have not seen the new Dave Chappelle special. If so, what would you think? Who are some of your favorite comedians? Uh, well, this is not quite the MMA start that I had expected, but it turned green, and it's the first one. So I suppose that's that. Let me make sure everything is going correctly and smoothly for your boy, which it is. Lord knows we have enough uh, tech problems on this to make me want to uh, commit uh, seppuku several times over, but none today so far anyway. Um, all right, let me push this tab over. Well, I'll answer this one very quickly since this is supposed to be an MMA podcast, but long story short, I've not seen it yet, although I'm really dying to. Uh, I am a Netflix subscriber, so that should be fun. Uh, once I get around to watching it, my wife loves him too. Um, the The interesting thing about Dave Chappelle and why I really miss him is because we sort of live in this age, although some of this is slightly going away, but we live in this age now where people say uh, racial humor isn't funny. Now, certainly racist humor isn't funny, and what distinguishes racial humor and racist humor can sometimes be a bit of a thin line, but... Uh, I always liked Dave Chappelle because he fully embraced racial humor. Um, you guys remember the, the bit he had with John Mayer where they would play different kinds of music and get like Latinos and then whites and then black people to start dancing in, in like various different occasions. Uh, I thought that was genius. You know, I thought that was totally genius uh, or not dancing depending on what it was. And I sort of missed the fact that he or the racial draft. You guys remember that? I thought the racial draft was like genius uh, and including Bill Burr and the other comedian doing this bit, you know, to celebrate. So what are the trades? And, and there's just not a lot of comedians who are willing to do that, partly because it's hard to do, partly because it's, it can be, you know, it's a perilous path if you're not good at it. But he was good at it. He, he did it effortlessly, it seemed like. And I don't know what's in this particular stand-up routine, but I do miss that very much from modern comedians. It's a lot of, like, political anger stuff with no which is fine, but there's like no willingness to tackle any kind of racial issues beyond the obvious, you know, aren't white guys just the devil, 
it's like, okay, all right. I mean, thank you for this deeply original contribution to humor. Um, so that being said, favorite comedians, um, Doug Stanhope, uh, Bill Hicks, um, Bill Burr. Ooh, who else do I listen to? Um, I was never a big Mitch Hedberg guy. A lot of people liked him. That wasn't quite my style. He's gone a little too like angry for me, but the old Nick DiPaolo I thought was really good. Um, who's good as well that I used to watch all the time. I really like. Um, Chris Rock, obviously. Uh, anyone else that really sort of stands out to me? Um, who's the insult comic who does all like the roasts on Comedy Central? I forget his name. He's really good. Sometimes Lisa Lampanelli can be good. A lot of times she's not. But when she's on, she's on. Um, Patrice O'Neill was the god. Patrice O'Neill was my favorite by a country mile. But, you know, he's deceased. So, well, so is Bill Hicks, I suppose. But Patrice O'Neill was like, that was my guy right there. I couldn't, I mean, he was apex predator comedy for me. Um, yeah, stuff like that. One says Jeff Dunham. That's the guy with the puppets. No, Jeff Dunham is, I, I don't do puppets or, you know, get her done later. The cable guy. I mean, please execute him in front of ISIS as fast as humanly possible. Please. Uh, interesting one. Arsenal fan TV. Even as Arsenal fan, there is nothing I look forward to more than sitting down each week and watching the comedy gold. That is Arsenal fan TV. I know you share this interest. So my question is, when will we see MMA fighting start on MMA fan TV where someone preferably you interviews drunk MMA fans after big events? I don't think there's a whole lot of interest in that necessarily. I certainly don't want to do that. But if you guys don't know what Arsenal fan TV, Arsenal is one of these big clubs, one of the bigger clubs historically anyway of English Premier League, which I don't watch a lot of. But they're in this really weird moment where they've had this manager for like two decades who at times has given the, the club their greatest glory, but right now just seems a little bit out of it. At a minimum, he's having a very bad season. Um, and the fan base is split between devotion to him and this crying call for uh, you know new ma new management. Uh, they hate the owner, Stan Kroenke. Kroenke uh, also owns the LA Rams. Uh, in addition, like the club has you know routinely just sort of placed top four ish a lot. You know they'll make it to the quarterfinals if that of the Champions League, and they wash out. It's been sort of this sort of a consistent level of success, but not really anything special about it. Maybe they win an FA Cup here or there. I, I don't I don't know enough about Arsenal's history to really say a whole lot about it. But suffice to say. Um, there's this guy named Robbie who runs a YouTube channel. It is it is genius what they're able to do. It is genius. It's this. I mean, it wouldn't really work. I mean, there's a whole industry of guys who do this, but it works really best at Arsenal Fan TV in part because of the personalities they have, but also because the Arsenal situation is really different than a lot of these other clubs. Like smaller clubs will do it. Liverpool's got one. Doesn't really feel the same. It feels a little bit more serious. Um, and it's it's a genius product. All the things they're able to do and maintain. And right now, Arsenal's at this really strange moment in their history. If you guys have not checked out Arsenal Fan TV, to me, their success, they have over like 400,000 subscribers on their YouTube channel. That is no way an accident. It is, it is, again, they're benefiting from a weird moment in time. But on top of that, the way in which they are able to produce quality content, uh, frankly, it's inspiring to watch guys just out of nowhere 
make things like this. But um, if you haven't, even if you don't know anything about English Premier League, uh, go check out Arsenal Fan TV. I, I think it is riveting content. I really do. And um, you want to talk about giving a voice to fans. This, I mean, this is every, I mean, I know a lot of Arsenal fans sort of say, oh, well, these guys are all, you know, YouTube stars and, and just looking for attention. And I'm sure that's part of it. But I know a lot of American fans who talk exactly like that um, to me who love Arsenal. So maybe not quite to the same level of histrionics, but um, it, it's it's an it's an incredible product. I'm I'm blown away by it. All right, can we get to some Bellator questions, please? Uh, so it says, have to like George Carlin. Yeah, sure. Donkey owns the Denver Nuggets, or his kid does. We loathe him in Denver. I'm glad Europeans do, too. He sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about that part of it, but in any case. Bellator pay-per-view. All right. 100K buy rate back in 2014 with Rampage and King Mo as headline for Rampage's inaugural pay-per-view. Should we expect similar numbers for Son and Silva? What is realistic? Man, this is a great question. I do think they're probably good for 100,000. With Fedor on it, yes, I know that we're in a situation where you were just about to get it for free, now you're going to pay for it. But it says the co-main event, that card itself was not that strong. Uh, as you saw when that went away, there, I mean, everything after that was, there were some respectable things about it, but not nearly to the same extent. Um, so this is in a co-main event role. In the main event, you get Chelsea versus Vanderlei Silva. This is sort of one of those moments where it's like, you real sure about those, um, about those fight fixing <laughs> uh, allegations? You sure about that? You sure it's good, it's a good idea to take a guy who uh, hadn't competed in a long time, didn't look all that great, got beat by a guy who's now gone from the sport and uh, is in a headlining role, and so as a consequence, there's dampened enthusiasm for him, and now they want people to pay for him. You sure about that? I don't think that makes a lot of sense to me. Of course, wouldn't that in and of itself doesn't disprove it, but it certainly creates a weird incentive structure uh, by which to undertake fight fixing. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any kind of sense. So that's sort of one thing to consider here because I've been, I've been asking fans, like, where are you on this? Because for me, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I'm going to be there covering it, to me, as a media guy, I'll just admit it is kind of interesting to see Bellator at Madison Square Garden for all the things it can do well, for all the things it might not do well. I'm just sort of curious to see what it looks like and what kind of show they can put together. So I'm a little bit tuned out from what the fan experience might be. So, you know, I was asking on Twitter, which I know in and of itself is not necessarily all that, um, all that accurate of a measurement of anything uh, necessarily, but there was... At a minimum, I would call it mixed reviews. A lot of it negative. Of course, Sonnen has a pretty big profile. Sonnen has, I think, a fan following. I do think that Vanderlei and Sonnen will do enough things to attract some attention, ultimately, um, in the interest of, of um, you know, generating pay-per-view buys. How many is certainly up for debate. I do think, again, I mentioned that they get the 100K before, but, but, but to be sure... You know, there's a lot of dampened enthusiasm about this for Vanderlei. They haven't seen him in forever. You know, um, Chell's been gone for as long as I mentioned before, and he looked terrible in his fight with Tito. It just is not a. It's it's a weird moment to launch a pay per view. And the other part about this is like, I don't. I'm very curious about the timing of this pay per view. I really want to talk to the people at Viacom if I can, if they'll speak to me about it. I don't know that they will. I'm gonna try. Because the timing of this one just feels a little bizarre. I don't, I don't quite get it. You've got, um, you had Kimbo Slice all that time, and he produced record ratings for you. And 
and you didn't use him for pay-per-view. Now you have people who ultimately draw less than what Kimbo even could do, and you're not putting that on, and you are putting that on pay-per-view. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about it, about why it's happening now, and certainly they've announced the the rebranding of Spike to take place not this year but the following as Paramount, which I think is probably a fine idea, especially if they're going to be reinvesting in the kinds of things that um, have been successful for other networks and for themselves too, um, in terms of content production. And, um, but I, it's a weird one, man. You know, Scott Coker has been there for a very long time saying very quite clearly, like the, he, he never said anything to me that ever indicated that he would, uh, abandon the idea ever of doing pay-per-view. He's always been like, look, um, you know, you couldn't rule it out, but our focus is television. Okay. Fair enough. You know, not long into his tenure, here we are, you know, uh, it'll be what? three years in June, actually, that June show will be like the three-year anniversary. You'll recall I did an interview with him in 2015 in St. Louis for, I think, the Kimbo, the Kimbo Ken Shamrock fight. And, um, and so this will be two years past that point. And uh, three years in, they're going to go for a pay-per-view. I'm a little bit surprised. You know, even when he was Strike Force, he was avowedly like, we build MMA for television audiences. That's what we do. Okay, fair enough. So what are you doing now? Um, I'm not even sure how well, I mean, this would do really well on TV, but would it, this is a serious question. Like, would it match Kimbo Dada if it was on TV as it stands right now? I don't know. Now look, they might add some serious wild cards to it. You know, I asked on Twitter if folks might want to see Gina Carano. A lot of folks said no. I don't believe that at all. I think if they put her on this show and I'm and, and there may be no way to do this. I'm simply imagining a scenario. But if they did, I suspect a lot of people would watch. Same with Herschel Walker, too. Um, especially if they could find a way to make that an interesting opponent. This is a case where, you know, I understand CM Punk wanted to, you know, see the bright lights of the UFC and the Octagon. But careful what you wish for, because I think we can all look around now and say, one, he's in a bit of a spot where UFC doesn't really know how to use him, uh, understandably. And... Two, he still wants to compete, and I think, as I mentioned before, if you've got a guy under contract, you should use him. He would be perfect for a show like this because they could match him up appropriately, and there wouldn't really be any question about what the Bellator product is. It would just be a, a product that does that kind of thing in addition to having world-class talent. Now, maybe that's something that UFC wants to approximate over time, in which case, okay, we'll have to rethink what we, what we understand about the known world, I suppose, but... Um, I, I I think if they pull a rabbit out of their hat, they might be able to do something with it. But anytime a television company, and if Icom is more than that, you know, certainly they own movie studios and a variety of other inter entertainment properties. It, it wouldn't be correct to think of them strictly as a television company. But in large part, that is a big, big portion of what they do. Certainly Spike TV is a... Um, a, a television network. Whenever a television network moves into the pay-per-view space... I always find that a curious thing. I always really do because you're, because look, Fox Sports is a television company, but UFC is not. They license their content out to it while maintaining strong pay-per-view presence and now to some extent a digital one and to varying degrees of success, of course. But um, whenever a television partner uh, wants to move into pay-per-view, you have to ask yourself some questions. And I'm not one of these guys who is like, Oh, the TV bundle is going away. The TV bundle is incredibly powerful. It is significantly more powerful than the taxicab bundle that is being undone by Uber. 
It is significantly more powerful than the hotel bundle, which is being undone by Airbnb. It is significantly more powerful than the newspaper bundle, which is essentially content and advertising packaged together that's being undone by the likes of Facebook and Google. It is way, way, way more powerful than that, which is why any kind of steady creep on uh, a decline in viewership happens very, very slowly over time because it appeals to so many different things. And the way in which everyone makes money it's one of the most dynamic bundles we've ever seen in the history of commerce. That is not an exaggeration um, with the way affiliate fees work and how the bundling together, everyone sort of pays um, um, for content, even if they don't use it. There's, there's almost nothing like it. Uh, but the ways in which it appeals to things, people might want it for the news and they might want it for the fantasy escapism and to learn things and for sports. And that sports one is really holding on quite nicely. The other ones are slowly coming apart at the seams, but they're just repa being repackaged into other bundles. Um, uh, ben Thompson of Stratechery, if you want to look more about he's done a, a series of lectures about this that to me have been quite persuasive. He is not a big believer necessarily that the TV bundle is going to come undone. Now, it might, um, and especially when you have things like Netflix paying television producers, or I'm sorry, television networks and studios to give them content and their model is eating the television model, right? The famous example, I mentioned this on my radio show yesterday, Ben Thompson is the one who originated this. One of these big sort of revelatory moments was when Stars, the channel, S-T-A-R-Z, they bragged they had an 11,000 uh, movie catalog. Well, if you go and turn on Stars, now they have Stars 1, Stars 2, Stars 3, but just that Stars channel, if you're watching, what is your effective catalog size? It's one. It's whatever's on at that time. Netflix, like Uber, like Airbnb, like Facebook and Google, is changing this because when they bought the rights to use that library, now what is their effective catalog under the auspices uh, of Netflix? It's 11,000. Because at any point, you can watch any of the 11,000 whenever you want. Um, that model, it's not, the TV model and the Netflix model are not the same model. It's one model that is an advanced rebundling of what television is doing. It's just that, that what holds it together, Netflix can't undo by itself. And Amazon Video is an even bigger one as well. They're the big player in there, surprisingly. I know everyone thinks it's Netflix. It's not. It's Amazon Video. But, um, but none of those are really attacking, you know, the, certainly not attacking the sports element directly and... There's the TV networks are making money off their deal from Netflix. It's like whatever's going to happen with that, it's going to be a slow, steady creep. But at the same time, you know, Viacom has had a tremendous amount of shakeup at the top with everything that has happened with their ownership structure. And Philippe Dumont was on the out now, he's gone. Um, they had a uh, there was a while there a documented loss of executives. It's just it's always weird to me when they want to launch a pay per view. You, you, it's hard for me to divorce all of that from the larger Viacom climate that exists and then the larger sort of structural changes in entertainment that exist. And how far we're down the rabbit hole we want to go is certainly, um, you know, up to you. But but I, I really want to talk to them about this because it, I, it's not that a move to pay-per-view doesn't make sense in theory. Oh, we you know, some content we want to reserve for television and the really premier stuff we want to be able to sell because we think we might be able to get a higher... Uh, profit margin or we want to use this as an exploratory case to see what we can do and yada 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 and if you're going to do a pay-per-view why not do it in Madison Square Garden it's sort of a lot of these features that make sense but ultimately how much revenue can they really get from that what kind of sales can they can they reasonably expect what is really what is really out there and why now why didn't you do it with Kimbo um, I'd be very curious to get some of these answers and to what extent is all this a response to Viacom shakeup spike rebranding uh, and the growth of Amazon video and places like Netflix um, 
or generally as TV is. TV, think of TV as dust. And it used to be that uh, the television networks had control of all the dust. But then somebody sneezed and it blew into a thousand particles. Now TV is like that. You got a little bit of YouTube and TV is sort of forming into what we understand as or its nascent stages Snapchat to be and to an extent Instagram videos and things like that. That's what TV is sort of becoming. Still that core, um, it's still that core basis of what we know it to be, right? Turning a TV, you have a guide, channels, things like that, cable TV. But it's expanding uh, to all these different regions. And, I, and I'd be curious to know how that pay-per-view fits into that conversation. I think they might deny that it fits in there at all, but I'm not convinced of that. I think I think there's more to the story. So can it beat Rampage versus King Mo? I think it can, but not significantly. Not significantly. What's interesting is imagine this was a UFC pay-per-view. Matt Mitrione versus Fedor Emelianenko, Chael Sonnen versus Vanderlei Silva. I don't think that would sell huge either, but I bet it would sell pretty good. 300,000, maybe, right? Fedor in the UFC? Of course, that would be the novelty of it all, right? Uh, someone says, I'm ashamed to say I was one of those 100,000 morons who purchased the original pay-per-view. Bellator better get some great welterweight fights on this card to make up for the two pathetic fights they have headlining. It's time we move on from these old fighters who are way past their prime. Not going to happen. They should be signing autographs and tents, not headlining pay-per-views. That's nice. Time for us to all speak with our wallets. Well, that part is true. If you don't want to buy it, don't. Uh, I don't know why people think this old man fighting thing is going away. It is so not going away. And you've got Hoist Gracie and Matt Hughes out there saber-rattling as well. It's not going... I don't know why people think this is... A, this, kid is, is, this is not sustainable. It's totally sustainable. It's totally... As long as those guys exist, a Matt Hughes type, a, um, a, 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 you know, if you want to put Chael Son in there, whatever. These older guys, th closer to 40 than 30 or maybe 40 plus. That, that let's, let's say that 35 to like say 45, somewhere in that range. Um, who are not, not long, no longer divisionally relevant, but, but promotionally relevant. As long as they exist, like if they, as long as they are literally there, this will keep going because people will keep watching. Passions for these guys die very hard. They die very hard. Now, the question is, do they die hard enough where you'll continue to purchase them on pay-per-view? I think that's a separate question. But as long as they're on free TV, come, you're, you're kidding yourself if you think this won't go on. This will absolutely go on because it absolutely works. And as long as that pipeline keeps getting created and Bellator keeps picking them up, they'll keep doing it. They can't rely on it as their sole business model. No. Um, but this idea that they have to get away from it or there'll be some cost to it, nope. Nope. As long as they exist, Bellator will probably keep using them, you know, unless they somehow UFC goes out of business tomorrow and they acquire all their roster or something, right? But as long as the dynamics are what they are, where the overwhelming bulk of elite fighters in their prime are in the UFC, um, they're going to keep doing this. They're going to keep doing this, and it's going to keep working. On pay-per-view, I don't know. On free TV, 1,000%. I do not understand why people don't don't accept that. Like how much evidence do you need? Every time they do it, it's basically a success. I, you know, a, a rousing success, I don't know, a major success, that's debatable. But it it's like look at their big look at their big time ratings. Look at the top 10 Bellator ratings ever and ask yourself how many of those were old guys. Look at the top 5. Kimbo's going to be what? 3 of those, 2 of those? I mean, this is this is an easy call. Whether we like it or not is a different matter. Um, 
But by the way, speaking of the video on demand stuff, that's why I think MMA lends itself a little bit better. Have you ever noticed that like people in the, and I didn't understand it at first because I've always made the argument, why are you getting mad at spoilers when it's live sports? Like fighting is a live sport. Uh, if a baseball game ends and people report that the Nationals drubbed the Toronto Blue Jays, no one goes, Jesus H. Christ, man. Spoilers. You know, uh, the Patriots lose to the Redskins 50 to nothing. I'm imagining things, obviously. Uh, no one goes, oh, man, spoilers. Because there's something fundamentally different about fighting. Fighting, number one, I mentioned all those passions to the old guys. It hangs on a very long time. It takes a long time to burn through that once you've developed a lot of positive equity with the fan base, number one. And number two, if a, if if you miss the uh, game between the Redskins and the Patriots, are you really going to sit down on your DVR and go through four and a half hours of game footage? You, may, you might put it on, you might fast forward from it, but chances are if you missed it, you just missed it. You'll catch the highlights or or whatever, the next game. Fighting is different. Fighting is, number one, you'll watch a guy long past the point where they're relevant. And number two, it feels like a spoiler because the ability or the need uh, to go and want to see it, even after the fact, um, if you've missed it, is strong. Very strong. Oh, like you missed a sporting event. Well, you know, the car just drove by and it won't come back again and that's it. Right? Or the bus left. Oh, all right. Uh it's not like that. You want to you you want to catch up with it. You feel like you can still get something out of that experience. In part because it might be short, right? A fight can be you know in the Rousey era as long as an Instagram video. But even if it's not, even if it's ten minutes, you still feel like you need to see that. And so for me, I think MMA in a way that other sports don't lends itself to a potentially new model, uh, whatever that may or new new bundling, I should say, whatever that ends up being in ways that other sports don't. I don't know exactly how that's going to look like. And Fight Pass is just going to be one distributor of this kind of content. There's going to be other ones eventually. Um, or maybe Fight Pass gives their entire library to Netflix or, or whatever the case. I don't know how this is all going to work. but And I don't know what the numbers are on Fight Pass for guys going back and looking in time. But at least in that narrow window where 48 hours after a fight, that's why they keep those fights up on pay-per-view for your cable company because people will go back and still buy them after the fact. They won't do that for other events. They just won't. And if so, fighting is interesting in that way. Mighty Mouse versus Wilson Hayes. It seems as though most people are asking when Mighty Mouse will break Anderson Silva's record rather than if he does. I've also seen very little coverage so far of his scheduled fight with Wilson Hayes. After a plus 600 underdog to Tim Elliott gave Mighty Mouse serious problems, I realized how difficult such a feat is. But what problems do you see Hayes giving Johnson? And what are the chances that he causes an upset? Well, look, on the ground, um, also, remember, Tim Elliott was really big, and we've seen that Mighty Mouse struggles with size. Yes, I know it was a long time ago, but his lost attempt to, um, um, well, Dominic Cruz is one, although Dominic Cruz is obviously a very talented fighter, but more than that, the uh, Brad Pickett loss. Yes, I know it was a long time ago. My only point being is Mighty Mouse is really perfect at flyweight. I don't, I don't think anyone, as long as he shows up and has a, a decent day, he shouldn't lose to anyone at flyweight. Um, in his current condition. Now, as he gets older or something, obviously this changes, but uh, you get the idea. But for me, um, Wilson Hayes is not a huge flyweight. I mean, he's a big, strong guy. Don't get me wrong, but he's not a monster flyweight. 
So that kind of changes the equation. Now, look, on the ground, who is better? Wilson Hayes is better. Wilson Hayes has great wrestling, and once they hit the mat, um, Wilson Hayes is by far the better jiu-jitsu player, like not even a contest. But that's that's under conditions where someone is forced to grapple with you, right? In a jiu-jitsu match, you have to beat the other guy with your own jiu-jitsu. In those conditions, Wilson is significantly better. In one where I suspect Mighty Mouse will do everything to avoid it, uh, that becomes much more difficult, both in the takedown itself and initiating scrambles, getting up, up off the bottom, that kind of thing. So, you know, could Wilson Hayes present problems for him? Sure. There are clear moments and clear opportunities for him where there is a skill differential in Wilson Hayes' favor, no doubt about it. It's just he has to get the fight there and keep the fight there and do a lot with it. And that just feels like over the course of 25 minutes when arguably Mighty Mouse has um, talent differentials in his favor in every other dimension. That's a hard That's a hard thing to do. So, look, I'm never one of these guys who counts out you know, contenders facing champions. I've said it, and I still believe it. I think the hardest thing to do in MMA is just sit, sit there and accept one contender after the next and just hope you're having a good day and hope they're having a bad day. On paper, yes, Mighty Mouse doesn't lose to anyone in that weight class at this current moment. But um, MMA is funny, and weird things happen, and this is an example of thing that could go bad for him, depending on how things shake out. So uh, I, I understand your tempered enthusiasm for Mighty Mouse, just this idea that he'll just run over everyone. He might, but I can see why you'd be a little skeptical. Just a dumb question. I am a donk. Forgive me. Um, how come fighters are in full mount? They never go for the old two-handed strangle. Is it illegal or something? No, but it's just a bad idea. There's a bad idea for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, when you commit both your hands like that, you can just break someone's posture and then roll them, right? There's nothing to stop them from rolling, right? It, you don't even need to break their posture. You can just buck and roll over your shoulder, not to the side, at a diagonal angle over your shoulder, and they'll just go right over. And at that point, what are you trying to do? You're trying to choke up. Good luck with that. You better have some serious squeeze. Second of all, it would just be more or less an air choke. You could blood choke that way, I suppose, but it would be very, very hard, especially if someone's punching you in the face or bucking and rolling you. It's just not a very precise choke. When you have control and slithered arm through for a, a choke, everything is, in, is encompassing around that throat at once, or at least the parts that matter anyway. So it's just a real... It's just a real amateur move. Most people know nothing about fighting. And chances are, if you've never trained or you've never fought, and I've never, uh, I mean, there's been some street altercations, but certainly never gotten in the cage. There's a lot I'll never know. There's certainly an overwhelming amount I don't know now. But you don't really appreciate that until you've gone and trained a little bit. I am telling you now, people think stuff like that. And I'm not bagging on this guy because I think I'm a lot of people that way. People think just reaching out and just two-handed strangling a guy is a thing. It's not a thing against anybody who knows even a little bit a little bit of defensive maneuvering. Um, you have to have an amazing squeeze for that to work. Even if someone tries it standing, you know, you can take their wrist and you, there's a, one of the earliest wrestling tricks I ever learned. Someone tries to strangle you by the throat. One of my favorites is to take it, uh, two hands on the wrist, come over with the elbow, and then you duck under, and then you can be behind them, and then from there, they're yours. You can you can waist grab. You can almost like, what's like it looks like a rock bottom almost, picking up a drop if, you can, if you're that strong. But it's it's easy to escape. It doesn't work very well. You, if you're if it's like, and I hate to say this, but I mean, if there's an enormous strength differential or and size differential, where it's like a man versus a woman or something, maybe that works. But if anyone is even remotely the same size as you, it will fail quickly. 
see. Connor beats Floyd. Hey, Luke, do you agree that if Connor, do you agree with the idea that if Connor McGregor somehow beats Floyd Mayweather, that accusations of a fixed fight will fly because that is a more realistic outcome? I think no matter what people are going through. People give out, people throw out the fixed fight in, uh, thing all the time, or if there's a bad decision or something. You know, they just can't accept that that competence is uh, a fairly rare and precious commodity. The rise of ACB. ACB has been a darling child among the MMA hardcores for a while now. But with some of the recent signings, they are starting to gain a little bit more mainstream attention. Not really. Do you see write-ups in the New York Times about them? They're getting more hardcore fan attention, but they haven't gotten, like, there's not, when you say mainstream, who's writing them up? LA Times? ESPN? I haven't seen that. From their talent distribution, which is YouTube, and commentary team, there's a lot to like. That part is true. I like ACB, but it's not true they're breaking through to the mainstream, at least not in the United States. I don't know what it's like at other parts of the world, but not here. Thoughts on their products? Look, I love it. I've sent, I've sung their praises. I thought their last show was tremendous. Mama Kaladov, it's a, you know, it's a shame he never fought in the octagon, but he looks like he's still got something left to give. And the matchmaking is strong. The talent recruitment is strong. The um, commentary is strong. Their understanding of needing an accessible English language um, avenue by which to share their product is smart. And they've got you know Frank Mir to help them do it. It's it's smart. It's real smart. The question is, what is it all going to amount to? What is it all going to amount to? Signing these guys is exciting, and their product is great. No doubt about it. Um, let's see what it amounts to, ultimately. And I hope it's successful. Believe me, I'm not trying to count them out. Far from it. I'm just not... I'm not... I mean, oh, they're getting more mainstream attention. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Their attention is specifically, at least in this part of the world, is specifically isolated to um, not merely the MMA world, but a niche portion of that world. If I asked you... Fast random person who I said you watch MMA oh yeah, yeah sure sure I watch I'm a casual fan or whatever maybe even a moderate hardcore fan even most hardcore fans don't know what ACB is Weidman versus Musasi I am pumped for this fight this guy says all right it's a good fight Chris Weidman is looking down the barrel of a potential three fight skid while Gagard Musasi is surging but looking at a do or die moment of his own. His UFC run to date has been has been a stumble in key moments. A loss to Weidman will only further validate this criticism. Ray Longo seems confident Weidman can push a pace over three rounds that will break Gagard, while Musasi seems confident he's got an answer for the pressure of Weidman. Who do you see winning? Does this fight go the distance? Man, I, this is a really, 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 really tough one. A really tough one. We've gone and talked at length about, which I won't repeat here, but we've talked at length about... Um, the need for tune-up fights and how rare that is and how important it could be, especially at this moment, two, not just two losses for Weidman, two really bad ones, right, where he got roughed up in that Luke Rockhold fight and then absolutely devastated by Yoel Romero. Uh, I admire the guy's tenacity to want to get in there and fight a guy as tough as uh, Gagard Musasi, but that has an extraordinary amount of risk. Um, you know, I haven't spoken to Weidman about it, but I talked to Musasi about it, and, you know, and sort of thinking about it, uh, you have to think about it the way a fighter would, which is forget those losses. I mean, maybe, they, maybe they're a factor, maybe they're not. It's one that Conor McGregor is pretty good at assessing whether that's really affected a guy. But um, what is he good at? 
Like what is Chris Weidman good at? Um, a lot of things. But one of the things that I think poses a big problem for, for Musasi is Chris Weidman is a big, strong guy. He's a big guy at, at middleweight, and he's very strong, and he's very good at wrestling. The question that you have to ask yourself is, do you believe ultimately Musasi has enough to challenge that such that he can keep the fight on the feet? Because I think we'd all agree, so long as that fight is on the feet or if Musasi is on top in the grappling department, which not impossible, but seems relatively unlikely, he can win. But if that fight goes to the ground and he's underneath, uh, again, not saying he can't win, but his chances decline rather significantly at that portion. What To what extent do you believe that that will happen? Um, especially over the course of only three rounds, which is another problem too. So if Chris Weidman is not damaged in some kind of way, either psychologically from these losses or isn't overly injured, you have to think that that's going to be a problem for Musasi. On the other hand, if you're Musasi and you think you've really improved your jab, that your technical defense is, is tight, that you know how to handle a big, strong American wrestler, um, then you like your chances. I, I, I just don't know because I don't know what kind of wide we're going to get. I mean, I guess I even kind of lean towards him, even though I'm really worried about the matchmaking here. It's not that I, when, when I wanted him to take a, a, uh, a tune-up fight, it's not because I didn't think he can't go back and win. It's that it's just not worth the risk, given a potential loss. That, to me, was the problem. I mean, if you lose to three top five guys in a row, I mean, technically, you can still be inside the top five, but that drops you pretty far, and you used to be the champion. Do you really want to fall that far when you don't have to? Especially when you can get a paycheck again, a win, potentially a win bonus, get your feet under you, get things going again, especially in your home state. To me, it's just a risk versus reward scenario, not an either or. Um, I, I guess the big part, the big strong wrestling of America of um, Chris Weidman is going to be a tough thing for Musasi to handle. But if Musasi's stuffing takedowns on the first and then creating separation after the fact, look out, look out. Ray Long goes, yeah, yeah. Does this fight go the distance? I think it does probably go the distance, unless someone makes a really catastrophic mistake. It should go the distance. All right. Someone says, I think there's a good chance of Musasi winning this and then Wyman moving up to light heavyweight to try his luck after three losses in a row. It's possible, too. This is a weird question. Young cats versus old heads. It's almost like a separate language. What's up, Luke? Why do these young cats want to fight all these old heads? What does it really do for a young cat like Kelvin Gastelum if he beats a 2017 Anderson Silva? A lot, which is why he wants to do it. Someone says, I'm not so sure why so many are making a big fuss about Gastelum calling out more senior big-name fighters. He's doing a very smart thing. Kennedy and Belfort were ranked higher than him when they fought, so to me it totally makes sense. When he called Silva out, all the fighters above him were already booked except number seven Silva, two Rockhold, and one Romero. Seems to me that the obvious option between those three is Silva. Not only he's a big name, but he's also most likely to accept the fight, in my opinion. There you go. Barbas. Well, y'all got some weird questions today, player. Hey, Luke, last week you mentioned something about how Barbas changed your life. How so? Um, I had never adopted a dog before. And to go, if you've never been to, I mean, I know there are some people out there who, you know, 
you should always adopt and never buy. I know people have disputed this. They have written to me about this. I, you know, it's fine if you want to live in that kind of world, but I don't. Um, there, you cannot imagine how many animals are out there in need that could use a home that are easily trainable, smart, um, often mutts, often of some kind of the American terrier pit bull variety. Um, because they, they, you know, I think they require a bit of a firmer hand in, uh, teaching, but they're equally smart, if not smarter. Um, these are great dogs. These are, these are really, really great dogs as guard dogs, as companions, as, as whatever a dog can often be useful for. Um, and it's not even about what utility they provide, although I suppose it's a big component of it, but, um, I, I think there's this sort of weird perception that, you know, the shelter is for uh, these, you know, diseased animals that are beyond reproach and nothing could be further from the truth. These are loving, super sweet animals that can be a really productive, healthy part of your household if you just give them a chance. I'm sure like anything, you're going to get a dog from the shelter and it might not be that great. But but largely, I think any kind of failure to that extent is going to be the responsibility of the owner for being a poor trainer. And I'm sure there are examples where that's not the case. No, no system is perfect, of course, but but the I just can't tell you how rewarding and enriching it has been to know that one of these dogs from a shelter um, could give back to your life in, in such a healthy and happy way. If you've ever considered adopting a dog, but maybe you were, and a cat too, I suppose, although cats are just sort of, you know, I mean, as long as they're not feral, cats are fairly uniform. I know cat lovers might... I have a cat too, so I get it. But, but, but I, I don't know. I, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, I don't know about going to the shelter. Dude, go to the shelter. Trust me. Trust me. You will be shocked at what you find there. It is, it is not the outlet mall of dogs, not even close. I will, I will never buy a dog, ne never in a million years. I will, I mean, you have to pay a small amount of money to these shelters because they provide, like when I got Barbara, he was chipped, uh, microchipped, neutered. Had his teeth checked, um, you know, cleared of any sort of worms, uh, the whole bit. Like, and and the only thing we had to pay for was a hundred and fifty buck processing fee. Nothing, nothing. You know, that's it. You try getting that on the street, or you take your dog that you buy from a breeder that you need to get those services done, chipped and then neutered and stuff. Good luck. You're gonna get. You're gonna pay a lot of money. So um, that's why the t-shirt money, which is, by the way being delivered this weekend, that's why that was so important for me because they need those those services need help. Because those dogs need help, and uh, <coughs> pardon me, and it has been a revelatory experience. Let, let me just tell you that. And look, sometimes I want to throw Barbrick's out the window. Don't misunderstand me; he's not the perfect dog either. He smells. He gets enormous eye boogers every single night. You know, there's there's a challenge to that dog, but uh, he's mostly a win. You know. All right, Mark Dia Casey versus Paul Felder. Dia Casey looked spectacular in London. Yes, he did. And exchanged some words with Paul Felder on Twitter, which leaves an exciting potential matchup on the horizon. How do you see that fight going? How far do you think uh, diaries can go? I'm, I'm assuming that means Dia Casey, Dia Casey, whatever you pronounce it. Uh, I'd like to see that. Some folks were saying it was too early in uh, uh, Dia Casey's, or Dia Casey, whatever it is, his development. It might be. I think Paul Felder's probably a better striker overall, more complete one. I think um, D. Casey is 
partly reliant on instinct, but I think his upside is enormous. And then with ATT sort of refining what he's already naturally good at, um, sky's the limit with him. So it might not be necessarily the best fight to make in terms of the development, but I'd be more worried if DKC was fighting someone who's like a balls out, amazing wrestler who's just going to take him down and hold him down only because you want him to face that guy, but you want him to face that guy when he's had enough time to work on that, to make that a competitive fight where, you know, maybe his wrestling will never be as good as the other guys, but it's good enough to stop him in parts and he can let the other portions of his game fly and, and that kind of thing. This one striker versus striker is probably a fun fight. I don't, if he gets knocked out, that's not good, but I don't worry too much about him in that regard. To me, this would be more of like a luxury fight than anything else. There's a question that is 75,000 words long, which I cannot have time to get to. Uh, Gary Tonin versus Shinya Aoki grappling match. What do you think of this matchup and how do you see it playing out? Gary is a significantly more advanced grappler than Shinya Aoki. Uh, that should be relatively one-sided. Shinya is really, really good for MMA, and he has good MMA jiu-jitsu, but Gary is significantly more advanced. That should be a fairly easy win for Gary. I mean, Shinya might be able to thwart him, but I suspect the heavy offense will come from Gary. No, no doubt about it. I would be shocked if Gary didn't win that. I mean, remember, Gary and Paul Harris went back and forth. Look how much smaller Shinya is. And I know there's probably going to be some weight consideration about it, but you get the idea. UFC Fight Pass. This is a really interesting question. Luke, I've been a Fight Pass subscriber for more than two years now, and I'm quite dissatisfied with the programming being offered, specifically live UFC content. Dana White had promised an increase in the number of live events that would be broadcast via Fight Pass. That has failed to materialize. Is there anything in the works to broadcast live UFC events anytime soon? Am I alone in my dissatisfaction? And there are a couple of comments here after the fact. They say, you are not alone, my friend. I think the point is that they are reducing their number of cards overall, but they probably have an obligation to Fox FS1 to air X amount of cards per year. The bigger ones will be pay-per-view, of course. So there's not much left for Fight Pass, and it's a shame. Someone says Eric Winter quit. He was the most competent executive they have. Another person says, "I Jesus, there's a lot of this. I totally agree. I had it for a couple of months and watched a bunch of old fights. That's its best use. After that, I don't think the live content is worth the cost, considering most things such as press conferences are on YouTube anyway. So another good point. Fight Pass, not worth it. It seems like a waste of money. The new owners don't seem focused on it in the near term. Few exclusive cards, not a lot of compelling original content and key staff departures. I'm not sure why you folks are still subscribing, aside from the hardcore fans of EBI and Invicta. If you want change, vote with your dollars. That is also true. Here's another one. Jesus, y'all are angry about Fight Pass. Not alone. Used to love it. Now I'm thinking of canceling. Here's another one. It was worth every penny at the time for the Nick Diaz hearing, but it really doesn't seem to be a priority under the new regime. That's interesting. Another one person says, they had an entire card air on Fight Pass just two days ago. Not two days ago, but just days ago. What I would like to see is an option for Fight Pass subscribers to get a discount on pay-per-views. Other than that, they have some great stuff on their Glory Kickboxing and EBI are fun events. Right now, it has become the hardcore fans' delight. Um, if As a standalone service, now imagine if Fight Pass was added to like Amazon Video, where you could get, if you paid 15 bucks a month, you can only get all of Amazon, but you could get all of that 
plopped in together, right? You would be like, that is worth my money. But right now it's not really that. Right now it's just, hey, do you are you interested in kickboxing? Not a lot of American fans are. You know, are you in interested in the guys at the very low end of the totem pole on these cards, with the exception of maybe one fight they might put down there on purpose? Um, some are, but not many. Are you interested in uh, jujitsu that's stylized like MMA in a way? Um, some are, not many. So they haven't really. I mean, I think I was talking to someone. Um, certainly, I don't watch WWE. I'd rather. Uh, contract some kind of untreatable communicable disease than watch professional wrestling. But I, um, the producer of my radio show is a big um, watcher. And he was telling me that now what WWE does is they don't even advertise, like they advertise pay-per-view. Oh, you know, Royal Rumble or something like that, that they don't even tell people to go to like direct TV and buy it anymore. They just tell them to go to the, uh, I mean, you could still, you can still buy it on direct TV, but they don't advertise it. They just tell folks to go to the, uh, th their service. It seems to me like if you're going to make fight pass work, just giving people the fringes of what's out there is going to have a very limited appeal. Ultimately, what people want is is they want that service to be central to the content that they're making, right? The important stuff needs to go there, and it does, but after the fact and with a lag time. And um, I think that's what people really object to, and I understand that. Now, for me, I like the Fight Pass experience. I don't watch a lot of the content. I'm told that there is more original content coming. In what form, I'm not exactly sure. Um, a lot of it, the content is nostalgic in nature or really only appeals to the audience that's already basically there, like the hardest of the hardcore fans, the people who are all in on the UFC experience, that kind of thing. Um, but what they haven't done is reached out and gotten... People remember we always think of the hardcore fan base as concentric circles. There's the tightest circle, then there's the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. They've really only got the very, very center of that bullseye. They haven't expanded too far out um, because that content is promised for pay-per-view or television audiences. And until that, until that paradigm fundamentally shifts, until they say, "Here's how our content's going to work: our main cards will air on Fox or Fox Sports One." Big cards will air on pay-per-view or big main cards. Everything else will air on Fight Pass. That would be a fundamental shift. Or if they said something like, starting in 2018, we're going to have 40 cards a year. 10 will be on pay-per-view. The other 20 will be on Fight Pass. 10 will be on network TV. Some, something like that, right? Less, unless that dynamic fundamentally changes, um, I don't know how Fight Pass can substantively grow. They can chip away at their audience, but what they have to do is it has to be the focal point of what they do. WWE Network has, I think, finally, my understanding is it's there were some hiccups early, but now it's basically a success. Certainly, I hear positive reviews from consumers because they went all in on it. It is central to that experience. You don't need it necessarily. I guess you can go and buy all these other things, but... Um, that that subscription based network, it's not like when you have when you have a subscriber network of anything, Netflix for example. Not everything needs to be a hit on there. You just need enough subscribers to pay for what um, does work, really. And you can take risks with things inside there. But they don't have enough of a subscriber base to be able to do that. So because the subscriber numbers are low, 
they have to be or you know low relative to what they could be um you know imagine if all the pay-per-views were on there like they are for wwe imagine how big the subscriber network might be so when i say low i mean low relative to that because that's low the budgeting is going to be low the priority is going to be low they're, they're still i know the guys who are behind it and they are believe me when i tell you they are trying to capture your attention i i, I am i know you may not feel that way but i can tell you that they are um but until it holds a more significant place in the content ecosystem of uh zufa you know it is what it is right What happened to the double M triple A? Boy, they are gone like a fart in the breeze, are they not? Kind of incredible. They came out with a bang and then they went silent. What's the word? Don't know because I don't get my emails returned. Uh, and what happens with the whole fighters union issue? Have things changed under the new UFC regime? I don't think so. Uh, you know what? Without, I'm not going to answer this question because I'm just going to, I'm going to, okay, between now and the next chat, I'm going to find out what the hell's going on. I'm going to try and get some kind of an answer. And I will report back to you because I don't have a very good sense of what's happening there either. And it does not look awesome. Um, okay. Sean Shelby and WME IMG. Under the Fertitta regime, it seemed the Joe Silva, the Joe Silva, <laughs> ran the show when it came to matchmaking. Now it feels like Sean Shelby is more influenced and steered by the owner's than Silva was. What do you think? Well, um, that is that's an interesting question. There might be more pressure up top, given you know recent conditions that have been established um, with the purchase. Hard hard to say exactly. Um, that's not my understanding. I think there might be a there there might be a culture shift up top in terms of what is a priority and what isn't, and so when that bleeds down, you get a a different set of outcomes. I don't know that they are knocking on Sean Shelby's office door every day saying "Do X, do Y, or you're out." I don't think it's quite like that. I think it's more of here are our larger priorities. Let's go and shift that direction. And they feel like they've got the fingerprint of WME on them, and in a way, I suppose that they do. But um, it's just that. Maybe Joe Silva had less of that to, to contend with when he was working, uh, or at least he had a different. They had different objectives back then too. It's just these are a new set of objectives, so it feels like the old ones were Joe's when, in fact, maybe they weren't Joe's. Maybe they were the companies he was carrying it out, and it just we just sort of said they were his when, in fact, they weren't. This could be a, a similar kind of scenario. The only thing that sort of occurred to me was um, I've I've been thinking about matchmaking a lot recently. Um. And how it works and why it doesn't. And I've been trying to think about like I was I was actually with Todd Martin of um, Sherdog in the LA Times last night, and we were talking. And I don't want to ape his ideas. I, I won't. He had some pretty interesting ones about like why they let why the, why they encourage fighters to call out other people, and why that ultimately leads to this sort of homogenization of callouts because everyone's sort of going for the same targets, and it gets uninteresting, and it changes the ways in which matchmakers have influence. I think it's a very astute observation. For me, the one I've been thinking a lot about is I don't know what's going to happen with these fighters union to your point about the previous question. And I don't know what's going to happen with this lawsuit. I don't, I don't God only knows what's going to happen with the Ali act or, or not happen. I, I don't know. But one of the things I think fans need to start accepting is I think all of us um, really want to see fighters taken care of more, particularly financially. That's a very easy argument to make. It didn't used to be. There's that famous whining and crying question to Chuck Liddell at the uh, Baltimore show, the one where 
Jones fought Glover Teixeira. Y'all remember this? They had some goober from Dundalk up there asking, you know, Chuck Liddell, why do these guys who have these incredibly elite skills that almost no other human on the planet has, why do they feel like they're entitled from to 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 large sums of money for that? I just can't figure it out. Yeah, I'm sure you can't, Dundalk. Um, but in any in any event, I, I, I'm all for that. I think you're probably for that as well. Uh, by the way, if you don't know anything about Dundalk, Maryland, look it up. The only thing to come out of Dundalk, Maryland are sexually transmitted diseases and good Charlotte. That's it. Uh, and mosquito bites. Um, but here, here's my point. For example, I was asked yesterday, like, are you in favor of this show money, win money, split uh, per split? Like, I'm in favor of some bonuses, but the amount of bonuses generally handed out are less than what they used to be. Remember, there used to be like social media bonuses and locker room bonuses. And so a lot of that's gone away. So to me, it makes more sense for these guys to get their money up front. I don't think ultimately not, you know, starving these guys out and laying a trail of crumbs for them to get all their money. Do I really think that produces better better fights over time? I'm, I'm not really convinced by that, to be honest, at least not substantively. What I would say about matchmaking, though, is, um, you know, the Joe Silva had a reputation for this, and Sean Shelby has one as well. And I've seen some emails that he's been on with with managers. They are They are tough customers, to put it mildly. But... I think fans need to ask themselves, how much control do you really want fighters to have in their own matchmaking? Because one of the fundamental premises of the Ali Act, and you hear the, the guys who promote it say this all the time. I get them in my studio all the time. I had John Fitch in the studio. I had Ben Askren, Randy Couture. I had Carlos Newton. I had Vinicius Queiroz. I had Nate Quarry. And their belief is that with the Ali Act passes, you know, in some kind of form, you know, relative to what it is today, that's you know reasonably recognizable that this would free up matchmaking that you could get the best fights which you can't get now because one promoter has total control and I can see in certain cases why that might happen you would have gotten a Randy versus a Fedor you would have gotten I don't know a Ben versus a Johnny Hendricks or something like that back when you know Johnny had ruined himself with whatever he's done but generally speaking fighters are going to take the fights that give them the biggest amount of money for the least amount of risk. That is the lesson from boxing, for sure. And I don't blame them for it because that's the incentives that they naturally have. Some guys out there won't respond to that, of course. I'm not saying every guy will do that. Far from it. What I am saying is enough guys would do that to fundamentally alter the MMA experience. I'm not saying I think it's good that matchmakers browbeat managers i'm not saying i think it's good that guys are forced to take fights or else it's not what i'm saying what i am saying though is i think we need to think long and hard about how much matchmaking control you want fighters to have ultimately i think they need to have some of course but i fundamentally believe to retain this experience that we enjoy of one two two versus three three versus four and so on you have to you have to make sure the matchmakers are the ones who ultimately, I would even say, final say. Um, otherwise, you lose that. But I would offset that with a significant bump in pay. That's what I would do. What's next for Gunny Nelson? He looked great on the London card, and Coach Kavanaugh wants Wonder Boy next. Yeah, at first I was like all in on that fight. I, 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 don't, I don't hate that idea, but I don't know that I love it. Uh, what do you think should be next for Gunny? Do you think, uh, and do you think he can get that welterweight title? You know what? Let me pull this up. I think 
some suggested a fight with Cerrone. And yeah, I'd be more in favor of that. I'd be more in favor of a Gunnar Nelson versus Cerrone. Now, Cerrone's coming off that loss. I get it. But I'd be a little bit more in favor of that. They're closer in the rankings. Um, you know, what you're seeing from Gunnar Nelson, th this was little of my takeaway from it. I thought that the style matchup, you guys saw in this week, this live chat last week, I said exactly this. I thought, I thought Nelson was going to have his way with him. Ultimately, he did. First round was a little bit surprising to me, but it went ultimately the way I thought it was going to. You have a guy in Joban who just has not great reaction uh, and anticipate anticipatory skills, and you have a guy like Nelson who can fire a hard strike, long range, quickly, and accurately. That's a terrible matchup for him. And so you, that's exactly what happened. And we know his ground game, Gunnar Nelson's, is tremendous, right? It's amazing what he can do on the ground. But I'm not necessarily seeing a lot of development on his feet. Like if 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 someone borrowed another Rick Story game plan, does anyone feel like that wouldn't work? I feel like it would work no problem. And so to me, I'm a little bit... Um, I need to see him against someone who's a next incremental level challenge for me to, before I say he should get Steven Thompson, who, you know, just came off 10 close rounds with the champ. Or, you know, seven close rounds with the champ or eight close rounds, whatever it is. That's that's kind of what I would want to see um, versus karate versus karate. I get why he wants that. You know, I get why he wants that because it's a big jump in the rankings. He probably likes the style matchup, particularly if he can get it to the ground. So there's lots of reasons why I understand. And I wouldn't hate it if they made it. I wouldn't go, oh, it's the worst fight ever. No, I'd be fine. But I think more to the point is if Gunnar Nelson really wants to contend with a lead of the division, getting through the Cerrone's of it feels like a minimum to me. You know? Look, what do you think is in Robin Black's future? He did a big brown breakdown that's a mouthful podcast episode which of course is an extension of shops fighter and the kid podcast that was really passionate and inspiring i feel like he's on the cusp of becoming one of the great the greatest analysts where do you think his personality would fit in best in the mma world well uh i reached out to him uh, he would let go from the fight network i don't know what's going on with the fight network tv is a fickle place man because the money and i don't know what he was making but typically the money in tv is extraordinarily good um, but it's just a capricious business and, uh, you just never know when the hammer is going to fall, you know, and it's hard to maintain. And, you know, you see, this is why to me, it's like, who's the most successful guy in TV. I, I don't know the answer to that, but to me, I don't think of someone like, you know, who did the biggest ratings necessarily to me. I think of someone like Alex Trebek, you know, a guy who's been on TV for decades. Like you like, think about that. You were on TV for decades with no signs of slowing down. Yeah, he attached himself to a franchise, and the franchise will probably continue without him, but boy, that's a sweet-ass gig, isn't it? Man, <laughs> they just don't come better than that. In many ways, TV is like MMA, where like your ability to stay in it, be it as a promoter, as a journalist, as a fighter, as a as a apparel brand, your, your, merely your ability to just stay inside of it uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a success story. So, you know, I know that he has a YouTube channel and that he's trying to pump that up. Someone linked it here in the comments so you can see it here. I think that's a good fit for him, you know. Uh, obviously, not, you know, I'm not saying I don't want him to go back and get another TV job or something. I, I hope he does, you know, of course. But, um, you know, he's got a dynamic personality and he's got a lot of ideas. And he's a very creative guy. And letting him fly on YouTube, you know, it might be a little bit of a tough sledding at first, but I suspect he can get going pretty quickly. Um, 
hard to monetize in the short run, but, um, you know, I love the YouTube stuff. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it. In, in October, I only had 4,000 subscribers and today I have 20,000 and, um, and I'm, I want to get that to a hundred thousand as fast as possible. And that's going to take a while, but, but I love YouTube. I love the, I love how, you know, look at the, I'm on YouTube now, right? I just love how creative it is. I love how interactive it is. I love the space and the freedom it gives for things that are live, for ingenuity, for interaction. Like YouTube is awesome. I, it's to me, it's been a, a game changer for me in the way I've thought about my career and what's next. So um, I don't think that having his own YouTube channel, I mean, it, he could blow that up and that could be all he does. I suspect he'll get some complimentary gigs between now and, and whenever that happens. Um, but to me, a guy like that who's bursting with ideas and creativity and enthusiasm, an outlet like YouTube is really, really strong for him. And uh, I think it's like the, the fact that like as soon as he was let go, he went right to YouTube to me is not an accident. I mean, I know a lot of people do that, but he's a much more natural fit for it. And, you know, a lot of these companies don't know, don't know what to do with guys like, like him or other people. And on YouTube, you got to build your own audience. You have to, you have to accrue things around you, but, um, you don't have to answer for anyone to anyone. And I think it's best if he doesn't, because he's, he, he can do just fine on his own. Fighting interview content. What do you guys pay for? What? Is there a situation where an MMA star is paid a little bit of money to give an interview or appear on the MMA hour? Or how does MMA fighting deal with that kind of stuff? Well, I have no idea. I don't, I mean, MMA hour is Ariel's thing, but I've never heard of us paying for an interview ever. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews for MMA fighting. I've never paid for a penny for one of them. Um, that can change a little bit. And I've never done this in radio either. In radio, sometimes people get it. If you have them in studio a long time, I've heard of that, but I'm, I mean, I could be wrong, but I've never heard of us doing anything like that. We just ask them if they want to be on yes or no. You know, is it just that the stars provide content and you guys give the stars a platform or is there money all involved also? No, there is. I mean, again, there, if there is, I am totally unaware of that. And in my experience, that has never, ever, ever been the case. Not once. Uh, Someone says they don't even pay Luke to come on the MMA beat. They just have a trap bar, some whey protein, and a weightlifting belt sitting in the studio. And Luke's senses kick in. And he's drawn out there out of duty. I don't lift trap bar deadlifts. I do only the real thing. By the way, I've been, I've been, I was unable to lift for almost two months because of my back, and I went back this week, and it is. It, it, I cannot tell you how much better I feel. If you donks out there are not lifting weights or doing something like that with your life, you have no idea how you feel about yourself. I am telling you. And I had someone reach out to me and was like, yoga is better than weightlifting only if you pee sitting down. Only. Only. I'm going to make a shirt that says deadlifts greater than yoga. That's going to be like the next shirt for this podcast. Uh, not everyone needs to deadlift. You should at some point in your life lift weights. Every guy, and frankly even every girl, should know their way around a weight room. You don't have to go five days a week Nothing like that. But at some point in your life or a portion of your life, you should lift weights. You should see how it makes you feel. You should see how it changes things about you, not merely your physical appearance to some extent, depending on, of course, your diet and your lifting schedule and everything else like that. But but lifting weights, I feel like, is such a primal, you know, just lifting heavy things in these often compound movements. 
it it feels like you feel like King Kong when it's over, man. I am telling you, it is not me alone who does that. You know, uh, I don't know Joe Rogan personally. I've spoken to him maybe a handful of times, but I I have I feel like I have a a digital kinship with him because his attitudes about weightlifting they don't I wouldn't say they match mine. He does it sort of a, a more individualized program under the auspices of a trainer. I'm I'm more just do sort of straight powerlifting, but. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man. Forget running on city blocks and tearing up your shins unless you're already naturally good at it. You know, swimming is a cool activity. I'm not very good at swimming, uh, but I don't hate on swimming. I think it's pretty amazing, especially if it's as like a calorie burner. And uh, there's other kinds, you know, just hitting golf balls, playing tennis. That's cool too. Physical activity generally is really, really good for you. But there is, to me, I've done everything, man. I have, uh, I competitively played racquetball in high school and, um, I went to like state tournaments and everything, and that's fun. I played tennis. Uh, I played intramural rugby. I've done judo. I've done jujitsu. I, you know, um, I didn't run much other than what was in the military and and what they require from you, which is not significant, but not insignificant, I suppose, more than the average person. And I hated running. Hated it. Hated it. Hated it. Always have. Always will. I hate running. Uh, don't hate cardio. I hate running. And uh, weightlifting to me just felt completely different. You can literally at the end of a workout your body looks different. Now it goes back to normal, but they call it the pump. It's a real thing. You can feel your chest. You can look at your arms and feel it, man. It is, it, it, it engages some kind of primal instinct to roar. And if you're not out there doing it, find some kind of program that works for you. Gym memberships are cheap. Even if you have to go to Planet Fitness, go out there and change your life. Go lift some weights. I am telling you, it's being strong in this world makes you feel like a million bucks. And it's fun. All right. With that said, let's go to the uh, Twitter machine. See what kind of questions you guys have today. I am at SBN Luke Thomas, and you can use the hashtag chat rappers. It's explained in the uh, post where this is embedded. How much does the loss hurt Joe Ban, considering he's in his mid-30s? Um, it's not good. It sort of keeps him in place. He was on that position where he was going to jump maybe into the top 10. And this keeps him out of that. I don't know that it significantly undercuts him. It more is just sort of a confirmation that there might be a limit to how far he can go. And outside of that top 10 is probably that. If Gastelum finishes Silva, does he get a title shot or a dumb interim title against Romero? Anything is possible, y'all. Anything is possible. Would you rather watch a 24-hour loop of Skip Bayless talking MMA or eat a Carolina Reaper? Every day for a year. I have no idea what a Carolina Reaper... Oh, guys, is this some kind of like roast sexual thing? Oh, it's a pepper. <laughs> uh, no, I don't... It's These are weird questions. Just me or did the refereeing at UFC Fight Night London seem eerily similar to the old Elite XC days? Yeah, it did. Inconsistent and quick stand-ups. I will say this, though. Particularly that Luke Edwards fight. Those guys were good at establishing contact and then contact against the fence and then the way they were just stuck there they couldn't do anything i didn't mind separations there believe me um it's a question about the fine conor mcgregor had i don't really care how much has the Reebok deal hurt high-quality MMA brands like Hayabusa and Bad Boy? 
Um, it probably has had a fairly significant effect, but without talking to them, I don't know. Hayabusa, I feel like, um, has managed to make other kinds of significant inroads into other, um, in their apparel, such that they, how, how am I saying this? They have a big reach into jiu-jitsu. They have a big reach into striking sports as well. Whereas Bad Boy always kind of felt like, like no one ever really wanted Bad Boy gloves. No one really wanted, a, I mean, you Bad Boy gi maybe, but it was like, but always felt like Bad Boy shorts or shirts. Whereas Hayabusa is known for like, I think they had a Bushesha gi. And they're known for their gloves are pretty good. Like they're known as like a quality manufacturer of usable material for those who train in ways that maybe some other apparel brands weren't. But, you know, without seeing their numbers, it's a little hard to know. But it's it's a question worth looking into. Gundalk power rankings. Chlamydia, mosquito bites, herpes, good Charlotte. <laughs> God, Dundalk sucks. Big portions of Maryland sucks. There's like Montgomery County, which is like a really nice place. And Baltimore, believe it or not, like Fells Point, there is that and some charm. Y'all, most of Maryland is. It's like a Dairy Queen parking lot with grass on it. I mean, it is terrible. Why do people ever believe anything Dana or Chael say? Because they are figures of significance. And sometimes what they say is true. So it's hard to know what's not true and what is. But certainly there are some credibility issues there. Who's less funny, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, or Jimmy Fallon? Ooh, who's the least funny of the three? Seth Meyers. What did you make of the speculation of Con Conlon's fight last weekend being fixed? Oh, God. I, I mean, really, guys? Life is too short to contemplate idiotic things like that. Um, the value in fight pass is the library, but like we talked about the bundles before here is when fight pass is going to be of value to you. Think of the UFC and all of their content, right? As, uh, a bundle. Why do record labels work? Like of all the things that have been disrupted, newspapers, the taxi cab industry, the hotel services industry, we mentioned with Airbnb and Uber and everything else. Why have the record labels, they, they took a steep decline and then they leveled off and they're expected to go back up. Why? Because the original bundle that they had has not been affected. The original bundle was the back catalog and then new music. And you might say, well, there's iTunes and there's Spotify, but they don't make a ton of money. Believe it or not, I mean, they generate what's called large sums, but ultimately they're not like making huge, huge profits. Really, it's the record labels that are the ones that are making money because that original bundle they still control. They've just, they've just, the distribution has changed a little bit, um, but not much. Just the iTunes and the Spotify's of the world having some uh, uh, control over it. That's why they they had a steep decline at first, another level off, and they're expected to go back up. So the the UFC bundle, as you think about it, when you have that back catalog plus all the new stuff, including live as it happens for everything, that's when that bundle will become a total uh, requirement for any kind of fan, right? Maybe, maybe they put pay-per-views separate or, or some kind of segmented stuff. When they, put a, when they make all the old stuff plus all the new stuff and the new stuff live as it happens, when you have that bundle, that's the same or a very similar bundle to what the record companies have right now. All the old stuff 
plus all the new stuff as it comes out, they retain the rights to it. Distribution is a little bit different, but UFC would then control the distribution as well. That's where the money is going to be made. But right now, it's just old stuff and basically very, very little new stuff. That's the problem. They don't have the right bundle. Uh, let's see. Should there be more than two matchmakers in the UFC? Yes. I think partly there's a problem with matchmaking in the UFC, which is why they've asked fighters to call out guys because they're so burdened with how much work is involved in trying to make sure events have what they have and they're meeting regional needs and their longitudinal needs and their market needs and their divisional needs and this fighter's needs that they're asking fighters to help them, um, which I don't think is the worst thing in the world, but it, it's not to me the ideal way. They need enough manpower help there that they don't need to rely on that. Uh, Paul Felder and Mark Diakisi. Yeah, we've seen that one already. Hunt versus Lewis in June. Is UFC getting fighters back too early after being KO'd? Maybe, especially a guy like that. Um, it's a good question. Let's see, he got KO'd what? At 209. So that was early March. So March, April, May. It's like a 90-day thing is met, but is that really enough? Someone says, all right, I can't read this question because they put it in the form of a picture. Jeff Ross is the roast master. Yes, he's amazing. How about Keegan, Michael, Key, and Jordan Peele? Yes, Key and Peel are hilarious as well. I like them a lot. Luke, do you think Leslie Smith could win in a grappling match against Dan Bilzerian? Yes. Uh, should there be more than yes? Uh, what do you think Connor still needs to do in the UFC to cement his place as one of the best? I don't know. Defending his title might be a nice start, right? Um, never done that, has he? What divisions in the UFC do you think will have a new champion by the year's end? This question gets asked all the time. Let's see. Light heavyweight. Um, maybe middleweight. Depends on hard to say exactly what happens there. Because even if Mike, if Mike loses, there's a different one. Even if Mike wins, he might not fight again. So you could have one either way with that. Uh, welterweight, probably not, but who knows? Lightweight, I mean, is that even going to get defended? Featherweight, ooh, that's the interesting one to me. Bantamweight, you might get a new one too. Flyweight, I don't think so. Women's bantamweight, I don't think so. Women's strawweight, probably not. But that Andrade one we've talked about before is kind of interesting. Why do purists whine about super fights? UFC has been putting out purist cards since 205, and they rarely do well. Hurts fighters. Uh, they do it because there's a lot of problems with doing it. Like just sort of saying, hey, this event is more exciting than another one is not the sum total of, of, of measuring whether or not it's important. The damage it does to a division is significant. Uh, the damage it does to matchmaking generally is uh, certainly debatable, but there it's not merely like no one is arguing that a big fight that could generate a lot of enthusiasm would not generate enthusiasm. The question is, what are the costs associated with it? How often to lift weight? Talk to an expert, but two to three days a week at a minimum. 
Uh, are the new owners of the UFC struggling to pay down the debt? Not that I understand it yet. True or false? There'll be a new lightweight champion by year's end. There might be an interim one anyway, so who cares? Who think of Dylan Dennis, and do you think he will have success in Bellator? Dylan Dennis signing with Bellator makes a lot of sense to me. I really, really like that uh, because, again, he can get the right kind of fight at the right time in his development, and to the extent he can provide some promotional shine and bring Conor McGregor in tow, it's great for Bellator. I mean, if that happens, I don't know that it will, but you get the idea. Um, I, I only I mentioned this before. The only thing I really kind of uh, I don't like is that we're not going to get. A, I, I guess we're not going to see him look to get a black belt world title. You know, he I he was I felt him very much missed at the uh, IBJJF pans over the weekend. I can tell you, I was it was unfortunate that he wasn't there because I think he could have done a lot of things. And you know, I think he won the pans as a black belt maybe a year or two ago, something like that. But he has not won uh, the worlds as a black belt, and I think that he could, and it would be nice to see an American do that. And he's one of those guys who could. But I really like. I really like the Spelltor signing. I think it's smart for both guys. I don't know if he's going to keep up this weird Conor McGregor light shtick that he does, which to me just feels very much forced, but uh, he's a great competitor. He's an amazing jiu-jitsu practitioner and very, very smart of Bellator to sign him right now and very smart of Dylan to sign with them. Very bright. Uh, thoughts on a John Jones versus Jimmy fight for the return of Jones? I wouldn't hate it. Um, not much of a tune-up fight, though. That's tough. Um, what makes a great fighter? Someone who can attack on different ends or who defends other ends and makes you play his game? Either. There's not one kind of great one. Uh, there are many. A great fighter is one who has a great success uh, and real and measured and unequivocal success. Whether or not they do it one way or another is simply immaterial. Pacquiao was more of an action fighter. Mayweather's more of a defensive fighter. Now, Mayweather probably has a better record overall for those reasons, but both are great fighters, right? Um, there's all different ways you can be a great fighter. Let's see if there's any more of these we can plow through. Habib Nurmagomedov, could Habib cutting weight a few months following UFC 205 been too short of a time in between fights? It's a good question. I'm trying to get him on my show to figure that out. Hunt versus Derek Lewis, who you got? Maybe even Hunt. But Derek Lewis keeps on finding ways to win, doesn't he? Amazing guy. Totally perseverant. Um... Interesting question. I, th I saw an article on BR and I thought it'd be good to get your perspective. What is the worst stylistic matchup for every current UFC champion? A guy with a similar reach to John Jones who can stuff his takedowns. Um, you know, obviously can strike a little bit in the, for Miocic. Uh, a guy who is roughly his size, but I think with better speed. Right? Who can, who can take him down. Um, for Bisping... Yoel Romero's, I think, a pretty tough matchup for him. I still think Bisping can win that fight, of course, but that's a tough one. Um, at welterweight for Tyron Woodley. Ooh. That's an interesting one. I guess in some ways, you would think Stephen Wonderboy Thompson would be that. Um, a guy with a long jab who can push 
who could push Woodley out of range and make and give Woodley no space to back up. Right. So Woodley always backs up against the fence. But what if when he's at that point, you're touching him and he still can't touch you? That's a that's a real bad spot for him. Like similar to what Roy McDonald was able to do. Um against McGregor, you know, a guy with balls out takedown takedowns like Hubby, but uh, someone who's a little less hittable, maybe. Um a featherweight. Jose Aldo's a tough customer. You saw it in Conor McGregor, a bigger one, longer reach power. Advance and weight, Cody Garbrandt. Jesus, that's a tough one. Um, I guess a guy who can, I would think that the movement of Cruz would be enough, but it's not. I have to think about the Cody Garbrandt one. And the Demetrius Johnson one, just one who can exploit one of his relative weaknesses so that he can't. With the problem with Demetrius Johnson, like what he does is, He's good at everything, and if he's not good at one thing or one thing's going poorly, he just switches the fight to a different kind of way. If you can deny him that switch, right, and you can really exploit that deficiency, then he's yours for the taking. It's just that doing that is incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, I think someone who can obviously bang with Joanna, maybe take her down a little bit and hold her there could be a big problem for her. And for Amanda Nunes, um, someone with good cardio, uh, someone who can get in and out of range, Someone with a good jab, that kind of stuff. All right, we have to go. Uh, please give this video a like, subscribe to the channel, share it around. We will have coverage. Uh, I, I don't know if we're sending anyone to uh, to um, Chicago for this Bellator card, but we'll have some coverage of it on the site as we always do. And I appreciate you guys watching. You're the best. I really, I really can't thank you enough. If you have any more questions, email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. And um, yeah. Follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, and I'm on Facebook at Luke Thomas News. Same thing for Instagram. I'm on the gram, like Trinidad James on Instagram, straight flexing. So get at me there. All right, guys. Thank you. Until next time, stay frosty.